following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, if you could find your place in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. We continue on through our study verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. Today we find our place at the beginning of probably the most comprehensive teaching that Jesus did during His earthly ministry, the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. So these next several weeks are going to be Uh, pivotal in our understanding, really, of the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. So as you find your place there, let me just introduce today's text with a couple of statements by some men who are far smarter than I am. D.A. Carson, who is a, a New Testament scholar, wrote about this particular section of Matthew. He said, the more I read these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the more I'm both drawn to them and shamed by them. Their brilliant light draws me like a moth to a flame, but the light is so bright that it also sears and burns. No room is left for forms of religion which are nothing more than veneer and sham. Perfection is demanded. Now that's not exactly encouraging, right? Perfection. Anybody here perfect? I saw uh, what I thought was like a somebody wanted to raise their hand. Like, no, I better not. So I'm glad you didn't. Another perspective on this text is probably to me. To me, it's much more uh, direct and personalized. John Stott wrote these words about our passage specifically. The Beatitudes are Christ's own specification of what every Christian ought to be. A comprehensive portrait of a Christian disciple. Now when I read that, it led me to the title of the message today. The abnormal or normal Christian. That prefix is in brackets. Because while the scripture would describe this in Jesus' teaching as the norm for a disciple, I'm afraid what we observe in our culture and in many times in churches across the the country and across the world is more abnormal than it is normal. And that's a shame. So my prayer today is as we read this text, I'm going to try, I've I've actually taught this before, one beatitude at a time, and and to try to not draw this out that long, I tried to be a little bit more, um, I guess, summary fashion in this as we take this whole text as a paragraph, but... Uh, as we do that, I just my prayer is that we tune in, tune in and engage with this closely because there's a lot of important 
important information that Jesus tells us by way of these disciples in the first century. So let me read for us chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. The text will be on the screen for you as well if you'd like to follow along. Here's what the Bible says, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, in Jesus' name, would you speak to us clearly this morning? Your word is before us, and I pray if there's anything that would hinder us from understanding or distract us from engaging with this word of yours, I pray you just clear those things out of the way. Help us to be attentive to what you have to say to us today. And Lord, I pray that uh, I wouldn't get in your way. If there's something that I'm planning to say that I shouldn't, I pray you'll stop me from doing that. And if there's something that I'm not planning to say that I should, I pray your Holy Spirit would give me those words. But in any case, Lord, I pray you will be glorified and we will be changed by your word. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This text is so important. However, it is very difficult. And so the more I read, the more I studied, the more I found new little things from, well, this person wrote this about it, this person wrote this about it. And I keep going back to the text and I think, wow, uh, this is not going to be very popular, most likely. But it's so vital. It's vital to our spiritual health. So as we start off in chapter 5, the first two verses kind of set up what's about to happen. Because if you look back in verse 25, the last verse of chapter 4, the Bible tells us that great crowds are following Jesus. It sets the stage of a context of who's there. And then Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 tells us what Jesus did when he saw those crowds. He went up on a mountain, he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he started to teach. So we know just by the setting, you can visualize. He's up on a hill, uh, uh, an elevated area. He can see all the crowds that have come and followed him at this point. 
And they're waiting. Remember last week we talked a little bit about people who were just kind of curious. Not everyone was really following Him with their hearts. They were following Him with their feet. Let me see what, what's going to happen next, right? Well now, you can imagine folks have kind of settled in. Jesus has sat down and He's about to teach them. And there's, there's three different sections really of how this text unfolds. And I'd like to just take them each one at a time. The first one speaks to our relationship to God. What does that look like? Your relationship to God. Well, let's take each of these verses one by one and see how this breaks down. The first one we see in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you have a condition and you have a result, right? But what does that mean? If we don't know what these things mean, then we're never going to have a goal or something we can strive for in our, in our lives, our spiritual walk. So you see this term, poor in spirit. So here's what we're looking at. This is a personal acknowledgement of our own spiritual bankruptcy. It's the opposite of arrogance, spiritually speaking. Okay, So this is a, a general confession of our need for God. If we walk through life and we claim, well, no, I can, I can handle it. God, I might call on you if things get really tough, but I'm good right now. That is not poor in spirit. That's the opposite. In fact, it's very foolish and it's delusional, quite frankly. We can't make it through life without God. Not, certainly not well. Okay? And that's, that'll, that will become very clear. So this right here, what Jesus is talking about, being poor in spirit, this is the deepest form of repentance. As a matter of fact, if you were to, to see a picture of this, you can make a note of this if you'd like to. You could turn back in your Old Testament and look at Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2, and you'd see these words, For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's a picture of being poor in spirit. There's humility. There's contrition before God. There's a holy reverence and awe of who he is, trembling at his word. C.S. Lewis, in his most wonderful book, Mere Christianity, wrote that whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we're good above all, that we're better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we're being acted on not by God but by the devil. I actually had somebody tell me this one time. This has been uh, over ten years ago. He approached me after church one Sunday to tell me, regrettably, that he and his wife thought they were going to look for a different church. And I, I was kind of caught off guard, and I said, well, man, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Does it, what, what's going on? What, you know, what's, what's the thought process? And here's what he said, literally. Well, you know, we've just found that sometimes when we leave the service on Sunday morning, we just don't feel that good about ourselves. 
I, I didn't want to say I'm sorry because that, that wouldn't be right. But I just felt so bad because I didn't know what to say. When I leave church, I don't need to feel good about myself. I want to feel good about Jesus. Jesus is the reason I have anything good in me. I don't, I don't have goodness. There's, there's not good and bad people. There's bad people and Jesus. That's, that's the truth. That's not a comfortable statement, but that's the truth. So seeing our spiritual bankruptcy, confessing our need for God, poor in spirit, the result is theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think about Isaiah 6 and his encounter, his vision of God on his throne. And he, his response, Woe to me, I am undone. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm a, a, unclean, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live on a, among a people of unclean lips. Remember, he's, he's face to face with his sin, the holiness of God, and he's broken. And so, he is literally mourning his sin. It's a personal grief of, of sin. It's a, a sorrow associated with repentance. So when you look at verse 4, that's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who mourn, who are heartbroken over their own sinfulness as they realize how much they need Jesus. Right? That's the purpose in this grief. And so John Stott would actually write, it's one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It's another thing to grieve and mourn over it. And it's not just personal. It begins with a personal grief over sin, but it then leads to a grief over the sin that's in the world. There's sin everywhere, right? Look around. Watch the news. If you can stomach the news. It's mostly always bad. Discouraging. Right? Because that seems to be... The th- those things seem to be what catches the interest of the audience. So an awareness of the sin of the world ought to produce a mourning for the evil in the world and the way it affects the followers of Christ. Mourning over our sin. Verse 5. Blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This describes someone who does not aggressively insist on their own rights. Not, not that we don't acknowledge that, that there are rights, but we don't aggressively insist on those things. Those who could assert themselves, but choose not to. Right? Because they're gentle. They're meek in their spirit. And by the way, self-assertion is never Christian. This displays genuine humility. It's based on a true estimate of ourselves and if you can see the progression here we've gone from poor in spirit acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy to mourning over our sin now to being gentle and meek as a result of those things you see how it builds on itself so these internal attitudes about who we are and why we need Jesus so badly in fact Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this about verse 5 the man who's truly meek is the one who's amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. You ever wonder about that? You ever wonder why God wastes his time 
I, I have. I don't know if anybody else has, but I have. And more particularly, I often wonder, God, why on earth am I, how am I allowed to be up here talking to other people? Like I have anything in the world to offer anyone about how to live your life. And, and I don't. Newsflash, I don't have it figured out. I'm, I'm a terrible person. I know some of you are like, yeah, I know. We've been trying to tell you. No, this, this, is, this is all I know about how to live life. Right here. And, and my guess is that you, you probably have one of these. Right? And, and so if I stand up here, and, and I don't mean this literally, but kind of, if I ever stand up here and I start trying to read, you know, tell you guys uh, this is my opinion of what you need to do, somebody like throw, throw something or tackle me or something because that is so wrong. And, and unfortunately, I hear pastors, preachers do this more, more often than they really should. But listen, n- none of my opinions matter to anybody, okay? Let's just be really clear about that. The only thing that matters for our lives, if we want to live for Jesus, is what does Jesus say? What, what does the Bible say? Not what I think. And so we need to be very clear that this, was, this is where the authority comes from. It comes from God and His Word. And we need to acknowledge those things. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. This is a, a hunger and thirst for the conformity to God's will. I just want to do what God wants me to do. Have you thought that? Has that come across your mind? God, I'm not totally clear on exactly what you want me to do, but whatever it is, that's what I want to do. I want to be pleasing to Jesus. I want to do what He says to do. Augustine, who was a early church father in his confessions, he wrote this really powerful phrase, and it's been repeated over the last 1,500 years or more. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It's an attitude toward God. God has made us for Himself And until we find our rest in Christ, we will be restless. Something's not exactly right. We'll try to find fulfillment and joy in who knows what. But until we try to find it in Jesus, we will not be fulfilled. That's where our fulfillment comes from. And so, you think about hungering for righteousness. Thirsting for righteousness. If you've ever been really, really hungry, or maybe on a hot day, really, really thirsty. Having this, how, Think about how badly you would just, I just want a little bit of water. You know, I keep looking at my cup here, and that water is getting less and less. I'm trying to ration it out here for the rest of the time. Thinking about those feelings toward the righteousness of God. It's not enough just to mourn over our past sin. We also need to hunger for our future righteousness. Right? So, God, I, I, I'm heartbroken over 
things in, in my past. But I'm praying, I'm praying you'll guide me in the future so I cannot do these things. And I can be more holy, more righteous in your sight. That is the relationship we have to God found in these verses. Now, the next one, beginning in verse 7, is our relationship to others. Our relationship to others around us. You look in verse, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. So do we have compassion for people in need? Do we withhold judgment that we feel like is really deserved and instead we offer forgiveness? Mercy. The Christian forgives because he has been forgiven. He forgives because he needs forgiveness. Right? And and let me just give you a, a personal application note right here. This is why you might hear a pastor or preacher sometimes say something like this. Hey, we, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. You ever heard anybody say that? Here's what's meant by that. Every day I need a fresh reminder of the cross. I need a fresh uh, update on... Uh, okay, let me, let me just say this again to myself. This is what Jesus has done for me. Now you may think, okay, well we know that story, right? We know that story. Jesus came to the earth in the form of man. He lived a perfect life, free from sin, full obedience to the Father. He then voluntarily laid down His life to be a sin offering for us. Substitutionary atonement is the term. He was our substitute. He took our place on the cross for our sins. And then as he was killed and buried, then he rose up on the third day, victorious over sin and death and hell, and now he has ascended back into heaven to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father, where he constantly prays for us and makes intercession. And if we will, by faith, through the grace of God, trust in that sacrifice that Jesus made for us, in, we're trusting in Jesus and in His finished work on our behalf. If we will do that, the Bible says we will be forgiven of our sins and promised eternal life, be given full grace, mercy, pardon for our sins and forgiveness. That's the gospel. Okay? I know that story. Why do I need to rehearse that every day? Here's why. Blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. You know how you get in a position where you're not wanting to forgive other people when they do you wrong? Because you're not thinking about all that Jesus had to forgive in your life. See, if I forget about the gospel, if it's not fresh on my mind, then when somebody does me wrong, speaks speaks to me uh, in a rude way, or cuts me off in traffic, or whatever it is, if I'm not thinking about Jesus and His work in my life, then I am not going to be all that anxious to extend that to somebody else. However, if all I'm thinking about every day, fresh every day, man, I can't believe Jesus has forgiven me all the junk in my life. It is, this is a miracle. And if that's what's on my mind, then guess what happens then when somebody treats me poorly? My first thought will be, yeah, I didn't deserve that. But you know what? Jesus has forgiven me so much. Who, who am I not to forgive them? If you've received mercy, you will be merciful. If you have been forgiven, you will forgive. When you read the parable later of 
of the unrighteous servant, the one who was forgiven this massive debt, but then he wouldn't forgive the small debt in his brother. You know why that was so wrong? He who has been forgiven much loves much. Right? If, you, if you don't see how much you've been forgiven of, you're not going to be that, all that anxious to extend that to somebody else. And that's what the Bible is showing us. We can't receive the mercy and forgiveness of God unless we repent. And we can't claim to have repented of our sins if we're unmerciful towards the sins of other people. Nothing proves more clearly that we've been forgiven than our own readiness to forgive. John Stott wrote that. That's a beautiful, beautiful statement. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure, clean, unstained, unblemished, unmixed with the world. The heart is the center of our being, so we want purity in our, in our inward lives. If you remember Psalm 24, it's a beautiful psalm. Psalm 24 who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in His holy place? But he who has what? Clean hands and a pure heart. What did David ask God for in Psalm 51 when he was praying a prayer of repentance after he had sinned with Bathsheba? Psalm 51 verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. You want to see God? Seek for a pure heart. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, children of God. This is describing people who will put an end to hostilities, who will bring uh, a resolution to a quarrel, who will not, not just... Not just and, and understand, this is a big difference here in this word. The Bible does not say... Peacekeeper. It says peacemaker. There's a difference. See, if you're just trying to keep the peace, a lot of times, what do you find? Um, let's, let's just compromise. Let's just try to find a way where we're not fighting. That's keeping the peace. That's not making peace. This is a totally different concept. People who remain calm even during disagreements... Jerry Vines, who was a, a very popular preacher at First Baptist Church Jacksonville, Florida, for years, now retired, he once said that Christians do not have the luxury of being unkind. Just let that settle in a little bit. Because that's difficult. Because there's people in the world, Right? I saw, I saw a little uh, one of these little brief little reel videos on Instagram the other day, and this girl was saying, "Don't you hate it when you go outside and there's people and you're expecting her to say people who are doing this or do, and they said she just said, "Don't you hate when you just go outside and there's people?" And she just sat there and then that was the end of it. I'm like, wow, okay, I resemble that remark sometimes. So this is the thing. What happens when a Christian, a professed believer in Jesus, follower of Jesus, what happens when that person is unkind? What's really just happened? I tell you, we have forfeited 
the privilege of telling someone about Jesus. You know why? Because if we've been unkind, then that means if we try to tell someone, you know, Jesus can change your life. Really? Has He changed yours? How do you explain to someone about the love of Christ when you've just been really unkind and rude? You just forfeited an opportunity to share the gospel. Without, uh, I mean, you'll have to do some extensive um, seeking of forgiveness and acknowledgement of being wrong and sinful. And I, I never should have spoken to you that way. I apologize. Please forgive me. Um, and then you might have a better picture to say, well, you know, I was unkind to you and I shouldn't have been, but the reason why I'm asking you to forgive me is because I really want to tell you about Jesus. And the way I just acted does not represent him well at all. And you'd have to do some extensive explanations as to why you behaved the way you did. But if you're not unkind, it's a lot easier, right? Peacemakers. You could even jot down, if you like to take notes, James chapter 1, verse 20. James 1, 20 says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's a great, great verse, great principle. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now I want to give you several different uh, reference scriptures that go with this principle. And I'll read them to you. I'll give you the... the um, chapter and verse and where they are but it's interesting to me how just this one verse in verse 10 is supported so well by multiple other scriptures Acts chapter 5 verse 41 they left the presence of the council rejoicing rejoicing they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ they were worthy to suffer that's Acts 5 41 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, one of my favorite verses. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Whatever afflictions for the sake of righteousness, they're light, they're momentary. But the eternal weight of glory is just that, eternal. Philippians 1 Verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake. It's been granted to the Christian. Philippians 1.29. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why are we surprised? Jesus was mistreated so terribly. Do we honestly believe that if we're following Jesus and trying to represent Jesus to the world that we would not be met with similar treatment? I mean, it's kind of logical, right? The last one I have is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. Hebrews 11, 13 and 14. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. They suffered. 
They didn't get their reward on earth, but they sure did get their reward in heaven. And later on in Hebrews, in the same chapter, chapter 11, verse 24 and following, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's a model. That's a model of perspective. Now, we've talked about the relationship to God, the relationship to others as it's addressed in this passage. The last two verses, though, get a little personal about persecution, our attitude. The Bible says in the last two verses, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this is very important, a very important distinction. Ready? Here it is. Blessed are you when others revile you on my account. When others persecute you on my account. When others utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So here's what that means and what it doesn't mean. Our affliction, our persecution, because of our stand for Christ, is a blessing. Okay? That's what it does say. Here's what it doesn't say. If you get treated poorly because you're a jerk, that's not a blessing. Okay? It's very specific. So we have to understand, this is not saying, well, well I, I'll just be... Uh, I'll just be a terrible person and people will treat me bad, but I'll be blessed. No, that's not, as, that's not at all what it says. It says if you're treated poorly because you have made a stand for Jesus and you're trying to show the love of Jesus and share the gospel about Jesus and you're persecuted or spoken ill of for those reasons, that's a blessing. Okay? I just want to be very specific. That's what it means. That's where the great reward is. So when you see... <clears throat> persecution is actually evidence of the believer's identification with Christ. I had a preacher tell me more than 25 years ago, it's easy to defend a faith no one knows you have. You know what that means? If, if you never tell anybody you're a Christian and you don't live a life that is distinguishable from anyone else in the world and so nobody, it's just kind of a secret... That, that so-called faith is easy to defend and you will not be persecuted for it because nobody knows about it. Right? We're talking about how deeply are these convictions held? How much do you believe in Jesus? How much does it affect your life and your lifestyle? Your behavior? That's what we're talking about. Because when you start really living for Jesus... I'm not talking about just sitting in your house behind closed doors reading your Bible and saying, I believe in Jesus. I'm talking about everywhere you go, no matter who's around you, no matter what you're doing, you are living consistently, boldly, confidently, but humbly for Christ. You're not afraid of what someone else thinks of you because you're going to be very clear that you believe in Jesus. Right? 
persecution is evidence of identifying with the Lord. And therefore your reward is great in heaven. Prophets were persecuted. The apostles were persecuted. Christ himself was persecuted. So let me close with this quote from John Stott. We conclude that the condition of being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted, is as much a normal mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart or being merciful. Every Christian is to be a peacemaker and every Christian is to expect opposition. Those who hunger for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness they crave. That's a terrible paradox. But what Jesus is telling us here is this is the normal Christian, not an abnormal Christian. This is what the normal Christian looks like. David Platt wrote a book years ago called Radical, and he, he outlined different behaviors and different perspectives and how this would be uh, appropriate for Christian discipleship. And then someone in a, in a comment on a review said, I don't understand why this book's called Radical. It's what we're supposed to be doing. It shouldn't be radical to be a Christian when you just live by what the Bible says to do, right? That should be the norm. It shouldn't be considered, oh, you're a Jesus freak. No, uh, just, just following Jesus, right? Why is it so odd for people to follow Jesus and obey the Bible? Why is that odd? It shouldn't be. In fact, there was a time when it wasn't. The year was 1555 in Oxford, England. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were being led out of a prison to be burned at the stake for their faith in Jesus. The place of death was on the north side of the town opposite a college campus and Dr. Ridley was dressed in a black gown and Mr. Latimer had a long shroud on hanging down to his feet. And When they came to the, the place where the stake was, Mr. Ridley embraced Mr. Latimer, and, and said to him this, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. He then knelt by the stake, and after earnestly praying together, they had a short private conversation. And Dr. Ridley, being unclothed down to his shirt, the person attending this event placed an iron chain around their waist and Dr. Ridley told him to fasten it securely. And as they lit the fire at their feet, Latimer cried out to his friend, Dr. Ridley, and said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day Light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never be put out. Can you imagine the perspective necessary to being escorted to your death and as you're being set on fire 
You're not thinking about the pain. You're not thinking about the suffering. You're thinking about the gospel light that's about to go forth. All you can think about, what a testimony! What an, what an influence for Christ! That is uncommon. The sad part is that it really shouldn't be. It shouldn't be abnormal to follow Christ with that level of devotion. So my prayer for us all is that these things, these principles would become more and more normal so that the community around us, our co-workers around us, our classmates at school, even the person in the grocery store or at the gas station would begin to see more and more what a true disciple of Jesus looks like. That it would become less and less abnormal for the glory of God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.